Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Well, bark. I've recently come across the internet and the World Wide Web. And what a fantastic development it all is. With Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you can communicate at the press of a button and share thoughts instantaneously to anyone anywhere in the world. What a difference this technology would have made to us in our day. Instant communication of our life's work, mm -hmm. our ideas and scores, sure. and our message across the whole known world. Well, absolutely, Mark. Mm. How fantastic mm. <laughs> in my worst German accent. But it does feel as if this instantaneous messaging, this Twitter and Facebook, is lacking in creativity. It can become so technical mm. with not much room for reflection. Mm -hmm. I've always seen my work as an artistic and creative activity even though many people have applied all kinds of analytical, mathematical, mm -hmm. and dry theological ideas to it. Would you believe it? Someone has found my violin sonatas, which I wrote in 1720, mm -hmm. to have all kinds of references to numbers and mathematics, which had never, ever occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> I know all about Pythagoras and his harmony of the spheres, but it's attention to cosmic order and mathematical mm. balance. I know all about it, but really. <laughs> However, this same commentator, I want to just demonstrate mm -hmm. on the piano. All right, then. This same commentator has identified references to God in my work and the salvation that is found in Christ throughout the violin pieces that I've just mentioned, even suggesting that the second piece with its minor key, mm. can represent the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the major key can represent the resurrection of Jesus. Although such a commentary can read so much into my work as a composer, which I'd never dreamt of, <laughs> I think references to Christian salvation death and resurrection do resonate with my own belief that my work in some way, whether it's both secular or sacred, was written for the glory of God. And as such, it's more of a creative work of art than a mathematical set of dry analytical formulations. Mm -hmm. And even though it sounds presumptuous, Mark, mm -hmm. I did feel, while working on my compositions, as if I was sharing in the very, very creative activity of God himself. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Well, Bach, um, I've had, I have so few pieces of writing to my name, unlike you, with your hundreds of masterpieces. And to be honest, until now, I've not thought of my story about the life of Jesus of Nazareth as a creative work of art. But the more I think about it, I could well have been taking part in an artistic and creative yeah, process. Well, I think so. Mm. But like you, I've been astonished by the insatiable desire of so many people wanting to focus on scientific 
mechanical, analytical and historical criticism yeah. without leaving any room for aesthetic and artistic creativity. Yeah. Yeah. For example, many people still think that my gospel story is the shortest, easiest and best place to start hearing about Jesus because, as they say, mine was written first and therefore mine is nearest to historical facts. Mm -hmm. I've even heard it said that mine is more primitive and less theological than the other Gospels. Would you ever? Mm. I see that the writer of the letter to the Colossians has described Jesus as the icon of the invisible God, touching on an idea that the very story of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ event, could be likened more to an artwork than a, a historical biography. Yes. So it's possible to think of Jesus as a visual work of art. Absolutely. An icon being made by God. I guess the Jesus story could be regarded as a sounding work of art. Exactly. A musical experience, if you will, composed by God. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have something here, Bart. Perhaps, after all, like you, I've been sharing in a very creative and organic process of God. Mm -hmm. I love these words from Novalis, spoken to the new king of Prussia in 1797, urging him to abandon the long tradition of running the state as if it was a factory and indeed treat it as a work of art. Ah. The ruler creates an infinitely diverse theatre, where the stage and parterre, the actors and spectators are one, and where he is at once poet, director and hero of the piece. Yep. I guess we could also add suitable musical allusions to these dramatic descriptions. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Hmm. I've heard that the Christian family, the church, gradually came to look upon the fullness of Jesus' life, death and resurrection as God's new supreme creative act, a new creation, his equivalent of a magnum opus. Yeah. But there is something troubling me. The last page of my Jesus story went missing very early on, and other people have been involved in trying to finish things off for me. Yeah. This worries me, because for so long, most of my readers have assumed that this work of mine was incomplete. It's been suggested that my missing manuscript might even have ended up as the conclusion to John's Gospel. Well, would you ever. So, if my Gospel text is an artwork, does my creativity need to have a clear conclusion? No. Or is it okay for there to be an element of fragmentation and, and inconclusiveness about it? What do you think? Yes, well, I don't think you need to trouble your heart about this, ah. Mark, my friend. Mm -hmm. After all, I never completed my art of fugue, my final work. In the event, after my death, one of my busy sons worked on that. Mm -hmm. and set down some possible conclusions, <laughs> so I'm told. I don't know if you've seen him lately. <laughs> and my Mark Passion, mm. which was based on your gospel text, mm -hmm. written in 1730, has been lost forever. Nobody's ever found it. And there are countless examples of unfinished works. I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. Schubert, mm -hmm. Elgar, Mahler, mm -hmm. Schoenberg, just to mention a few. Mm -hmm. There are countless ones. But I think all this highlights the fact that creativity, by its very nature, is incomplete, even fragmentary. After all, are not others, apart from you and me, mm. 
actively involved in expressing, performing, mm -hmm. and recreating our work over long periods of time. Mm. I even get the impression that the prevalence of social media texting these days, have you heard of that man Trump, by oh, the way? Yes. Encourages abbreviation and fragmentation and limits words to 140 words for each tweet. <laughs> That's hardly a recipe for creativity and artistry, it seems to me. Nope. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh. For now, I'm responding to your thoughts about creativity and artwork, mm -hmm. and I want to stress the importance of another word, apart from creativity. What's that? Improvisation. Mm. Improvisation. In my day, I got quite a name for myself as being an improviser <laughs> at the organ and the harpsichord. I, I want to boast now. Oh, right then, yeah. There's a story about the time I was invited to visit King Frederick of Prussia in 1747. Uh -huh. And he took me into his music room and he sang a complicated theme. Oh. Let me tell you how it went. You listen to this. Frederick said, there you are, Bach, improvise on that tune. And you know, I wrote four fugues on it <laughs> in four parts, then in five parts, and then in eight parts. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. I challenge you to think whether I'm as good as that old man Beethoven. <laughs> he, he, was, he was really good at improvisation, so they tell me, but oh, he right. had the advantage of a keyboard like this. And listen to Beethoven in his Fifth Symphony, oh, how yes. he improvises on a theme just with two notes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> what a brain. Not to mention the very foundations upon which jazz performances are based. And you know, there's something about this. There are some people who are natural at improvisation, and yet hopeless at sight reading. You know what I mean by <laughs> yes. sight reading? And vice versa, if you're good at sight reading, you're usually pretty poor at improvising. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, I don't know what you think of this. What's that? I do wonder if Bible fundamentalists and literalists are better sight readers than improvisers. <laughs> so Mark, yes. can you regard yourself more as an improviser? and less of a sight reader? There's a thought. Do we need to sit down for this I think I need to sit down to answer this yeah. one. If anything, if anything, I could see the life of Jesus as a grand and wonderfully creative motif. A sort of primal, da-da-da-da, like a light motif, a cantus firmus. Oh yeah, you live in the house where Bonhoeffer lived. I do, yeah, yes. yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In Forest Hill. In Forest Hill, where he imagined it. And perhaps, perhaps all my words about Jesus in my Greek text could, at a pinch, be regarded as an improvisation yep. on the artistically created theme of God's love for the world. Yep. yep. What do you make of these words by a Swiss friend, Hans Urs von Balthasar? 
God first creates from the twisted system of the world's sin the five-line staff upon which Christ's melody can be written down for men and women to hear and understand. Oh, I like that. And so it does make sense that in the process of writing down the story of Jesus, with lots of help and vivid recollections and handed down memories from so many others, of course, I guess I've been engaged in an improvisatory process. Yes. Good. (laughs) But there's also a problem with that, especially if improvisation is linked to the question of creation, the beginning of all things. Putting it bluntly, can we still say with confidence that creation came from nothing? if improvisation is playing such a pivotal role? Well, I think that's quite a question. (laughs) Yes. Does it help for me to suggest that my creativity comes into being only when my music score Mm. is interpreted and played? Mm -hmm. And likewise, only when your text is sounded and read aloud, even performed or played. Mm -hmm. For me, the creative act is such a communal activity. It involves not just the composing creator, but also the transcribers, the performers, the (laughs) listeners. All of them have their improvisation to play. Yes, go on. Well, you see, I can't be doing with idolising individuals, as that dry philosopher Kant does with his idea of genius, making one person... Mm the sole originator, the sole author of an artwork. It's down not just to you and to me, Mm -hmm. Mark, Mm -hmm. or even to God the creator, for that matter, Mm. even though plenty of people think so. Mm. Incidentally, I think that's another problem with today's social media and Twitter Mm -hmm. in particular. There's a culture growing amongst us and predominating and not very creative at that, Mm. in which attention is focused solely on one person. Did I mention Mr. Trump earlier? Yeah, you did. Sending out a text, encouraging an individualistic and an elevated position and viewpoint, a modern Western obsession, in my view. To press this home a bit, I think that my St. Matthew passion, which people seem to like, becomes a work of creative art only, only when my crafted, hard-worked and hard-won scribbles in manuscript have been transcribed and printed, interpreted, played, sung, listened to Mm. and truly heard by others. Mm. In other words, you can't describe the written text as a work of art just on its own. Yes. I can see what you're getting at. I sometimes feel that my manuscript, my gospel text, is elevated to such a degree it becomes an otherworldly word of God. And so I'm sure you're right to stress the community aspect in the creative process. My Jesus story is an organic, living, developing thing. So many people have been involved in copying, translating, inserting chapters and headings, even correcting my manuscript. And there is still more, 20 centuries on, preparing to play it by proclaiming the great theme, by preaching, Mm. reading aloud, by entering into it with active listening and attentive hearing. I think, incidentally, this can only be done in time 
and in space. It should not be idolized and pushed out of time or into some metaphysical, unreachable space, six feet above contradiction, as some have said. <laughs> You're right by the pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps my creative work should really be an inv invitation to come out and play. Yes. Just as your music scores cry out to be played by others, I wish I'd known about that old playful rhyme before my fellow gospelers got hold of it when children shouted to one another, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We made lamentation, but we did not beat your breast. This, the great leitmotif, that cantus firmus of selfless love and the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ could surely be thought of as God's way of inviting everyone out to play to sing his song, to skip his dance, enabling them to become improvisers and therefore participators in the new creation, the magnum opus with him. Yeah. And more than that, there are hints in the Hebrew scriptures which imply that creation itself takes place with such a thing as playfulness and delight. In Proverbs, we hear about the Lord God creating wisdom as the beginning of his works before all else that he made long ago. And in an English translation, his text continues, Then I was at his side each day, his darling and delight, playing in his presence continually, playing on the earth when he had finished it, while, he did, while my delight was in humankind. Oh, hold on, yeah. hold on, my friend. I think you may be running away with yourself. Slightly. And going a bit too fast for me. <laughs> Take your time. Okay. However, you have touched on something. Mm. that really, really fascinates me. The meaning of time. Mm. And how we should best keep time and play in time. Mm -hmm. I'd be most interested in your views, even though this runs the risk of becoming so complex, to be almost incomprehensible. Stephen Hawking wrote a book, A Brief History of Time. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have flummoxed more people than it has enlightened. Although he has opened up a wonderful concept of deep time. Oh, Sorry. thank you very much. Your mic is I've run out of something here. But <laughs> Did you all hear that? Good. You don't need it, do you, Bark? <laughs> <laughs> Although he has opened up that wonderful concept of what he calls deep time. Mm. an approach towards the notion of eternity. I hear that Cardinal Newman's Gerontius, set to music by Elgar in oh, 1900, yeah. sings some memorable words, How still it is. I hear no more the busy beat of time. No, nor my fluttering breath, nor struggling pulse, nor does one moment differ from the next. Oh, they're wonderful, wonderful words. Mm. And even Elgar's managed to capture it. But there are so many ways of understanding time. There's clock time, of course, which has a clear beat, not unlike my heartbeat. But then even that can be irregular now that I've got so old. And look what trouble is caused when railway networks try to regularise their station clocks. It was five o'clock in the West Country and ten o'clock in Edinburgh. <laughs> In 1815, well before the railways, some people 
found the metronome when it was discovered to be not all that helpful with its strict time. Mm. They said, surely time moves, moves in a variety of ways. It flies, it drags, mm. it even stands still. And that piano virtuoso from Hungary, Franz Liszt, in 1870 wrote these words. I'll try and imagine his Hungarian accent. A metronomical performance is certainly tiresome and nonsensical. Time and rhythm must be adapted to and identified with the melody, the harmony, the accent and the poetry. Yeah. And just to make things even more complicated, it's been suggested that time in music can be both a circle yeah. and an arrow. Yeah at once recurring in a circular fashion, but also beginning at one point and moving on to its conclusion yes. at the end point. Yes. And in the 21st century of all times, a book was written with this title, Bach's Cycle and Mozart's Arrow. <laughs> How about that? Well, well. <laughs> but the thing most appealing to me is the idea that the process of hearing a musical melody has three parts, it's threefold. <coughs> First, hearing. Mm -hmm. Secondly, having heard. And thirdly, being about to hear. Mm. All at once. Mm -hmm. This brings past and future all together in the present, and that feels right to me as a composer. Someone else has said something like, it's what goes on between the notes, mm. not so much the notes themselves, yeah. that matters most. Yeah. So, with all that off my chest, Mark, do you think this could be helpfully applied when listening to the music of your gospel that you've written? Mm -hmm. The cantus firmus melody of Jesus Christ, mm. when that melody is proclaimed, preached and reflected upon? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> Well, hang on. Yeah, yeah. It's five to eight now. <clears throat> it was very clear to me while gathering material for my story that there were lots of past references and traditions relating to the arrival of Jesus on the scene, mm -hmm. recorded in Hebrew prophecies and early messianic traditions, and lots of future hopes and expectations linked to his life, mm -hmm. not least his resurrection and the end of all things, along with all the memories of Jesus' words and actions in the present tense. Yeah. So it makes some sense to say that the process of hearing the melodic story of Jesus can indeed be hearing, having heard, and being about to hear all, all at, at once. once. This could address a common problem in today's readers of the story of Jesus, as told by others as well as me, many of whom put the priority of the Jesus story firmly in the past without listening and attending to its melodies, which can be heard in the present, as well as in things about to happen in the future. And I suppose it's true to say that the modern social media texting influences people have with severely limited approach to time, it's all instant communication seeking to reflect only one aspect of time, yeah. usually the past. Yeah. Certainly not having a threefold dimension of past, present, and future considerations within it. I can see that people should be warned not to be conditioned 
by a solely one-dimensional approach to understanding texts. Yeah. <laughs> I love the opening lines from T.S. Eliot's Burnt Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. Yes. And how fascinating it is that Burnt Norton is one of four quartets. Uh-huh. And how musical quartets require all four players to relate in time to one another in harmony, yet with each distinctive individual voice being audible to all the others. Ah, yes. How true. And incidentally, I hear that old George Friedrich Handel, my old friend, he told me that those people called Methodists began soon after my time to sing some words that Charles Wesley wrote by faith... We know thee strong to save. Save us, a present saviour thou. Whate'er we hope, by faith we have, future and past subsisting now. now. And did my other old fellow German, Gottfried Leibniz, (laughs) say something like, the present is suffused with the past and pregnant with the future? That's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well... Let's now turn on to something else, which is the nice subject of rhythm, Mm -hmm. especially as many musicians put great store by rhythm in order to grasp the shape and the form of a musical text. Mm -hmm. But just like time, Mark, Mm -hmm. it's vast and complex. Here I wonder if we could pin back our ears for a moment. Mm -hmm. One example. In the years soon after me, I think they called it the Romantic period... There was a rhythmic pattern called sonata form. Became highly influential. Put very simply, there was an initial theme which was called the exposition. Mm -hmm. This was followed by the development, Mm -hmm. which explored a variety of shapes, musical keys, patterns of the theme. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. this was followed by the recapitulation. Mm a resounding of the theme in the light of all that had gone before. The attentive listener could easily pick up and recognize this threefold rhythmic pattern in the music. Mm -hmm. So the form of the music is determined by its rhythmic, Mm -hmm. sonic shape. The opening movement of Beethoven's fifth, da-da-da-da, is a jolly good example. And Prokofiev wrote a classical symphony, which is perfect sonata form. So... Recapitulation is jumping out at me. Yeah, it does. (laughs) The second century bishop, Irenaeus, claimed that Adam, the first human, set out on life, his theme and exposition, but as the human race evolved, made a right mess of it, development, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, when he entered humanity later, set about retracing all of Adam's steps, restoring his so-called fallen state at each stage along the way, the recapitulation. Yeah. So the attentive listener to my cantus firmus should be able to detect this rhythmic recapitulation, the resounding melodic shape which underlies the Jesus story whenever my gospel is heard. Yeah. Yeah. But sadly, my hearers seem to be more interested in listening to historical fragments, not to the organic sonic shape and rhythm of Jesus' life. 
It doesn't help that for most Sunday worshippers, they hear only tiny extracts from the whole gospel each week. And as for the influence of Twitter, etc., it can see that there is no awareness whatever in the shaping or the form of the messages. No detectable rhythm there, I guess. But will you allow me to contradict myself and very quickly focus on one small but significant detail before we move on from our discussion on rhythm? Of course, Mark. (laughs) When I was reminded of Jesus' well-known parable, the sower and his seed, indeed the first one I jotted down, I was acutely aware of those memorable words, those who have ears, let them hear. I've had Jesus begin with an arresting tone, akute, listen. I then tried to recount the parable in a Greek poetic style, and whenever I hear it, as opposed to merely reading it, I'm struck by its obvious rhythmic musicality. Wow. But how hard it is for us non-Greek speakers mm. with such un-Grecian ears <laughs> to hear that rhythm that you're just describing. I've heard it said, to read the scriptures in translation is like kissing your wife through a handkerchief. So thanks for pointing that okay, out. Okay, great, yeah, <laughs> I've not heard that. Mark, we must surely listen out more and more for these organic rhythmic patterns in the text. Yes. There may be more of it about than we think. Mm. I tried very hard to feel the musicality of the biblical words and phrases that I set to music, especially in my passions, the passion of Matthew and the passion of John. As you say, akute. And for me as a musician, of all the human senses, Hearing takes pride of place, surely. Yes. yes. There yes. can be no music until it is heard. Yes. How about that, Mark? Well, J.S. <laughs> I'm beginning to feel that the penny might be dropping. If there's no music until it is heard, it may also be true that there is no gospel of Jesus unless it is heard. This is becoming clearer now. I think that's right. Isn't it interesting that John, my colleague, in his gospel, has Jesus say during a climactic moment, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Yes, indeed. I reckon John could have just as easily written, my sheep hear my music, my cantus firmus, and I know them and they sing my theme along with me. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) My friend Hans says that hearing should take priority over seeing. He points out that when we see, we can so easily have control over what we perceive, as if we're grasping and owning a whole range of understandings. Whereas when we hear, we become humble and attentive. The hearer belongs to the other, and thereby becomes obedient to the other. Of course, Paul, in his long letter to the Romans, adds such a powerful line about our faith. Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. So throughout this whole conversation, we've been stressing and talking up the vital importance of careful hearing, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Mm. But I must say that it made a huge difference to me when I originally set out about writing my text with attentive ears rather than just with my eyes. Mm. Listening out for what what could be heard in and around the words... I was trying to do that very thing when in Rome, when in Rome, 
I was transcribing Peter's stirring thoughts from his sermons rather than seeking to unravel or grasp the meanings of the truth of every word. Mm. Instead, I was striving to be attentive, obedient, and faithful, a faithful hearer of what lay behind, around, and beneath Peter's utterances. Yes. I'm a little envious of my fellow gospeler Matthew, who used the word symphonio Ah. to describe agreement made between two faithful people after a serious dispute. It picks up my thoughts precisely about hearing and sounding as one, as being in tune. So, Buck, I do hope it will make sense for others to think about becoming more attentive and obedient hearers of the cantus firmus of Jesus in its organic form, so that they can be aware that the abundance of critical tools at their disposal these days, biblical and literary criticism in particular, and their obsession with historical and literal truths are not the most important things when approaching a given text. Can you say that again? (laughs) I think that's so important. Yeah. That bit about... This bit you... It's important to be aware that the abundance of the critical tools at their disposal today, such as biblical and literary criticism, that their obsession with historical and literal truths are not the most important thing Mm. when approaching Mm. a given text. Mm. It's more important to sharpen our ears, our inner instruments, and become attentive listeners and hearers. And a little Hasidic story sums up this well for me. Two men came into a palace of a king. One of them concentrated on each room, admired with a connoisseur's eye the precious materials and the jewels, and could not have enough of examining. The other whisked through the rooms, continually saying to himself, I hear this is the house of the king. This is the king's garment, and I'm sure I can hear his voice. Only a few more steps, and I shall behold my lord the king. Lovely. Now, your reference to sharpening our ears makes me realize that in the playing and the performance of music, there are so many things about which we need to be sensitive. I'd love to know what you think about how we should hear Mm -hmm. and how we should listen. Mm -hmm. This is particularly important to me as I'm blessed or cursed (laughs) with the gift of perfect pitch. When listening to music, there are so many important aspects. For example, here's one. As people play my music, do you think they are in themselves perfectly in tune with me? Hmm. As Wesley's followers wanted them to be in connection with him? Mm -hmm. Are people properly attuned Mm -hmm. to me? Are they in the right mood? We Germans have a word for mood called Stimmung. In order to hear and perceive everything that may be in it. And the second thing I want to ask is are people expecting to pick up subtleties of expression, moving organic forms and shapes, sensitive and aware of pauses, silences, recognizing the weight and length placed on stresses, Mm -hmm. anticipations, all those things that are not spelled out in the written score because they cannot be put down in words or symbols. I'm asking these things because the musical listening experiences of most people these days seems to be in the area of easy listening. Smooth classics at seven, 
on Classic FM. With the help of modern IT, social media, so much music is played in the background mm. while people are doing other things. Yeah. It's rather like sonic wallpaper. <laughs> it can meet our needs for soothing our troubled breast. Mm. It can excite our emotions, especially our sexual passion. And a well-known philosopher has even described music as nothing other than auditory cheesecake. <laughs> so my question is this, Mark. Oh, okay. Here's another question. Okay, thank you. When people play and join in your music of the gospel, mm -hmm. do they hear its real but sometimes inaudible voice? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Too often these days, with only brief fragments read out in church worship, opportunities for hearing the whole range of subtleties of sound and tone in the gospel text are missed. I'm sure there would be a whole new world of interest if players of the text were more attuned, mm -hmm. more open and expectant, more in tune with themselves and their environment. For example, I think my account of the death scene the passion of Jesus is bursting with inflections, pauses, yeah. rhetorical devices, yeah. stresses and, and, and dramatic expectations, varying tones, overtones and pitches, voices and shades of expression, especially undisclosed punctuations. Yeah. Yeah. But sadly, so few people are aware of them, let alone listening out for them. <laughs> also, today's hearers of the word have become so accustomed to having all punctuation marks, and sentence shapes and structures and other dynamics provided for them, even chapter numbers and verses, yeah. it seems they no longer need to do any imaginative or creative hearing and listening for themselves. Have they forgotten that my original text was a succession of unbroken lowercase letters with no paragraphs or punctuation marks? let alone chapter and verse divisions. Yeah, I'm sure people forgot that. Yeah. A, a famous present-day actor, another Mark, Rylance in this case, he said, I think we speak like a speedboat careering across a deep lock. So many different forces are at work to create the way we speak. Oh, how true that is. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you will expect me now to comment on more problems with the ever-present social media and text messaging. Mm -hmm. Instant messaging has no room whatever mm. for subtleties no. and hidden meanings. Mm -hmm. Everything is as it is. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. In moving here, you know, in this <coughs> place, I think they call it heaven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. There are so many different cultures, ethnicity and backgrounds. And before we leave this discussion about being in tune... Mm. I think we have just enough time, have we, John, um, to face up to the profound issues that surround our own culture and our own nationalities. Mm -hmm. In my own case, I'm deeply conscious that my German origin deeply affects both the way I've written my music and the way it's played and received and interpreted. Mm -hmm. There's little doubt that Germany has had enormous influence in the Western musical world over the centuries, in spite of someone describing German music as empty, strident, and incontinent. 
<laughs> nice. How about that? <laughs> the triumvirate of Bach, Beethoven and Brahms has held sway for countless music students. And butting in, don't forget that Bible students in the West have had their own German triumvirate too, Bart, Boltzmann and Bonhoeffer. Oh, yes, but I simply <laughs> want to say how important it is for us to recognise the characteristics and accents of our individual local nationality mm -hmm. when we perform, interpret and play music. Mm -hmm. For example, have you heard of Percy Granger? Mm -hmm. That eccentric Australian pianist. He plays my fugues very differently uh -huh. from that serious-minded German speaker, Arthur Schnabel. <laughs> what do you think, my friend? I think that language, nationality and culture are highly significant especially when it comes to performing the scriptures. I mean, look at the countless numbers of translations of my gospel available now. In the English-speaking world, how on earth do people choose the right version from such a multitude of current yeah, translations? No idea. <laughs> and of course, I had a constant challenge writing down in rather coarse Koine Greek all those thoughts and concepts most of us which had, uh, most of which have been originally expressed in Aramaic. <laughs> Something that helps me is a comment made by my fellow gospeler, Matthew. Jesus translates God. Jesus is the one interpreter who accomplishes the miracle of translating the being of God into a language accessible to creatures. Well. I think I'd want to say, Jesus sings God's melody. Jesus is the one interpreter who accomplishes the miracle of singing God's song in harmonies and tones which resonate for others. Wow, that's wonderful. Not only should we be aware of the characteristics of our own native tongue, we should also be aware that there is available an accent and a language, a culture of a kingdom, a realm, if you will, which I've tried to reflect in the cantus firmus of Jesus. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mm. goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a kind of signature tune for Jesus' life, I think. It resonates with those inexpressible subtleties, anticipations, despairs, discords and harmonies we considered earlier. This is the culture, the language, the dialect, the accent which rules over all languages. Yeah. And when we listen to the cantus firmus of Jesus, we need to hear the overtones and silences, the pauses and spirit-filled inflections, that signature tune of the whole of Jesus' organic life, his dying and his rising. This was what I was seeking to convey in my gospel when I had Jesus trying to convince his disciples about his essence, his reason for being, insisting three times, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I wanted it to be like a musical climactic outburst preceded by many tensions, building up with anticipatory leading notes. Well, well, well. Mark, that just about sums up everything we've been trying to share together. Mm. And as we finish, 
A memory of Chrysler once at some recital in this same city, the seats all taken. I found myself pushed onto the stage <laughs> with a few others, so near that I could see the toil of his face muscles, a pulse like a moth fluttering under the fine skin and the indelible veins of his smooth brow. I could see, too, the twitching of the fingers caught temporarily in art's neurosis as we sat there or warmly applauded this player who so beautifully suffered for each of us upon his instrument. So it must have been on Calvary, in the fiercer light of the thorn's halo, the men standing by and that one figure, the hands bleeding, the mind bruised but calm, making such music as lives still and no one daring to interrupt because it was himself that he played and closer than all of them, God listened. But you know, wow. before we finish, I've come to the conclusion mm -hmm. that there's a huge question hovering over us all. Oh yes. Like a coda at the end of a great symphony. If we take Dietrich Bonhoeffer's approach uh -huh. by using this word, the polyphony, the many, many phases of musical sounds of life, and listen to this multitude of sounding themes and the rich variety of musical experiences we've been talking about across the globe, can we ask this question and leave our friends with this question? Mm -hmm. Is the unique and distinctive melody and cantus firmus of Jesus, is it the only music to listen out for? Are there other musics we can hear and perform? Thank you, Dad. <laughs>